All right, well, good morning, Veritas. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here today. Um, we're going to continue our study through the book of Hebrews this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews 13. And while you do that, I want to share something with you. Um, some of you know that not too long ago, my wife and I moved into a new house. And um, I really had no desire to move out of our previous house. It was small, but my wife and I were both completely content in that house. But in a very short period of time, uh, through a lot of different people, God had convicted me that a loving thing to do, uh, my wife as a stay-at-home mom, would be to move her and the kids into a bigger house. So we did. And you'd think that being content in a small house would mean that I'd be content in a bigger house. Um, after all, it was a new build, and so theoretically there's not a whole lot that's wrong with it, right? Not a whole lot of worries that go with it. And it didn't take long, it only took days probably hours after being in that house, to realize how much was actually wrong with it. Um, those windy days we had back in December, January, and we had chunks of dirt and wind and water blowing in every single window in the house. They were completely closed. Frost on the inside of every window when we wake up. Then I noticed there's a crack in my bathroom sink, and there's a crack in the patio out back, and they forgot to put this trim on, and these drawers were put on wrong. And, oh, all the spokes in our deck were blown out by the wind. Our children could have died. Um, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And the thing about this is, I, I, not only could I not feel gratitude for this, it actually is a beautiful new house, I could feel gratitude for this new house that God gave us, but I had this, this constant kind of feeling of dissatisfaction kind of rumbling in my soul, and this nagging feeling of restlessness that just went with me wherever I went. I uh, could, could never just kind of have a settled peace in my life, no matter what I did, because I always knew, well, there's all of these things amiss that I want to change, but I can't. And now I want to be clear. It, it's not necessarily wrong to want your circumstances to change. It's not wrong for me to want those things to be fixed, but it is wrong to allow those circumstances to consume your heart so that entitlement and grumbling take the place of just sort of joyfully accepting whatever circumstances God brings into your life. I have a problem. I want what I don't have. I want all those things fixed, and after call, after call, after call to the builders, they're not fixed, right? But Veritas, I think that a lot of you in this room probably have the same problem. I think Veritas, our, one of our biggest problems is that we want what we don't have. We want what we don't have. And it results in a constant restlessness inside of us. You're, you're sort of never at ease. You've got this anxiety, right? You, you feel unfulfilled. You have a problem, a hard time being thankful with your lot in life, whether it's I'm single and I want to be married, right? I have a boring job and I want my dream job. Or maybe it's not something big like that in your life. Maybe it's, it's the small things. When the small things go wrong, they really unnerve you, right? Completely hypothetical example, but let's say you're getting into your car on the way to D group one morning, and your protein shake spills out of your bag and dumps on the garage floor. And you're going to be late for your D group because not only do you have to clean up the mess in the garage floor, but you've got to go make a new protein shake. And so the tone of the whole day is grumbling and ingratitude. That's just hypothetical, but maybe some of you guys can relate to that. 
But guys, that's, that's a miserable way to live life. And, and the good news is that you can have a future where you sort of have this kind of, just this sweet, quiet, settled peace about your life. Um, you kind of have, just have a, a gracious frame of spirit all the time, no matter what the circumstances are in your life. You don't despise your circumstances, right? You rest fully satisfied in them. You can have that future. We can have that future. There's a solution to discontentment that we're going to look at in Hebrews today. So we're going to focus on verse 5 to start, but I'm going to read both because we've just got two verses for today. So let me just read the whole passage to get it before us. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So first, I want to help you see a connection here between verse 4 that we looked at last week and then the two verses for today. This section of Hebrews, it kind of looks like it has no rhyme or reason to it. It actually does. Um, These are very intentionally placed side by side. Um, not haphazardly. In both the Old and the New Testament, the most frequent way that the writers illustrate covetousness, right, or discontent, this idea that I want to get something that I don't have, is one, impure sexual desires, right? I want that guy's wife or girlfriend. We saw that in verse 4. Or greed or love of money. And we see that in verse 5. And he connects those two at the end of verse 5, where he says, no, just be satisfied with what you have. So I want you to see that that connection there. The problem, we said, is what we don't, we we want what we don't have, and that's, in essence, what coveting is. I want that thing, or I want that set of circumstances, I want that life that somebody else has, or that I don't. But let's narrow in on this command, keep your life free from the love of money. In the immediate context, to help you make sense of this, we know in chapter 10 that the audience here, they underwent some suffering, and part of that suffering was a loss of possessions. So there may have been a temptation to kind of build up security in their lives by amassing money and material possessions. Because in in chapter 12, we see once again this call to endure suffering. So they're probably thinking, well, suffering might be ahead again for us, Man, we need to buckle down for this, and and maybe just kind of fattening our bank accounts would be a way to do that. And then in verse 13, or excuse me, in chapter 13, as we saw a couple weeks ago in Mark's sermon, there's this call to selfless love. Well, a love of money and a selfless love toward others are are really incompatible. And and so that's probably the immediate context that the author here is speaking to. But, But let's broaden the context a little bit. The love of money is opposed to two things as it applies to this passage. One is contentment. Okay, Jesus says so much in the Sermon on the Mount. So don't worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So the love of money is opposed to contentment, but it's also opposed to a trust in God. See this in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. 
But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, let's be clear about this at this point. We need to address money, right, because it's in the passage, and we'll come back to the idea of money here in a little bit. But elevating anything in our lives, not just money, to too great a love is opposed to contentment and trust in God. Okay? So if you say, well, I don't struggle with money, well, this sermon is probably still for you. So where do we go from here? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, he says, well, just be satisfied with what you have. End of sermon, right? Should we pray? Go home? Just be satisfied with what you have. Seems simple enough. But this isn't the total solution, but it does give us a valuable insight into what contentment is. And if you're taking notes, this might be the first point you want to write down. Contentment is wanting what you already have. Contentment is wanting what you already have. You know, earlier I described what my heart has been feeling like with a house situation. You know, I am having a really hard time being thankful for this, this good gift that God has given us. And contentment is always accompanied by gratitude. Contentment is always accompanied by gratitude. And whereas I have this nagging feeling of dissatisfaction, a content heart is fully satisfied. And probably the most unnerving to me, I've got this, just, this constant feeling of restlessness. And contentment is marked by sort of a settled peace in your heart and mind. That's probably the number one mark of discontent. And it's really a, a miserable way to live life. Um, I, I've been telling people, man, it feels like I'm living in a hotel. You know, in a hotel, you never get too settled. And in my house, I, I can never get too settled because I, everywhere I look, there's something that needs to be fixed, right? Well, guys, take that illustration and apply it to whatever you're discontent about. That's what discontentment feels like. It's like you're living in a hotel because you can never get too settled in this life, right? Now, as we said, that's, that's not a fun way to live life. Um, but contentment isn't only a heart that's marked by this gratitude, this fulfillment, this peace. It's also marked by kind of this sense of just accepting whatever the circumstances are that God brings into your life. I'm just going to kind of joyfully accept them, whatever they are. Right Now, we'll color in this contentment more as we go, and we'll look at some solutions here in a bit. But if at this point you're saying, man, I'm, I'm kind of sick of that kind of life, that, that just constant grumbling, that constant feel of uneasiness or agitation because of this thing that I want that I can't get, like, I, I want the life that, that's just always gracious, always got a peace of mind. Well, you can have that. So, so let's look at that next. If contentment is wanting what we already have, how do we get to the point where we actually want what we have, right? Here's what I want. Here's what I have. How do I get where those are the same? Well, let's get that first diagram up there. We, we need to look at the starting point for discontentment, first of all, okay? The starting point is this. We're, in essence, we're comparing reality to expectations, okay? And you guys can see some examples on here that I've already stated, right? Maybe, but maybe one of his, you know, I don't have kids, and I so badly want to be a mother or father, right? Maybe I don't have much money, and I just, man, I just need some more money. I don't want to be a millionaire, but I just want some more money, right? And the prevailing mindset here is, 
if I can just get my circumstances right, I'll be content, right? If I can just kind of manipulate and control enough of my circumstances, then I'll finally be content. Remember the problem we stated. We want what we don't have. We have reality. We don't have expectations. So what's the solution to this problem? How, how do we kind of bridge this gap? How do we bring, bring these, you know, so there's a, a, a bridge between the two and actually have what I, what I actually want? Well, let's look at the first solution here. here. Here's potential solution number one, okay? So I can change my circumstances, right? Easy enough, right? If I'm single, I'll just get married. That seems pretty simple, right? If I don't have enough money, I'll just get more money. That seems easy enough. Well, guys, you can see that this breaks down really fast, right? Let's put that next slider up there. Guys, you can't always change your circumstances, right? It's probably a good thing, but we don't control our circumstances. And here's the thing. Even if you could control your circumstances, let's go to the next slide. Our expectations are always on the rise, right? So I'm single and I got married, but you know what? It's not really the wife I wanted. You know, she's starting to show some age. She really doesn't do all the things for me that I want to do, right? Like, hey, that's what, that's not what I think, believe me. I'll be honest with you. And yes, my wife is here today, but that's not what I think. But let's, I mean, guys, we can fill that gap in our heart with any of these things, and it's never going to fill that gap that it's supposed to fill, Right? Or the desire just changes. Maybe I did get the wife I wanted. That's never going to give you ultimate satisfaction. So let's look at a, another solution. If I can't change my circumstances, well, maybe I'll just lower my expectations. Right? If I'm single, just get rid of that desire to be married. Is that simple enough? Guys, the potential solution breaks down here. So many of the desires that we have, they're not inherently bad. Okay, some of you guys know my story. I want to get married at 22. I grumbled and had a lot of heartache for 11 years, okay, before God brought a wife into my life. I wouldn't have told that 22-year-old me, just get rid of that desire to be married. Just throw it aside. I've got a lot of family members who have struggled have kids, some who don't have kids that really want their bed, I'm not going to look them in the eye and say, here's the solution. Not get rid of that desire to have kids. That's, that's what will work. Right? Guys, these aren't inherently bad desires. Okay? Even the desire to have more money is not inherently bad. All right? But be careful of this one. Sometimes we don't even want to just lower our expectations we want to go to worst case scenario. We make them the worst expectations they could possibly be, right? Well, God, he brought me through this season of suffering, right? Well, surely there's more suffering down the road. I mean, if, if there's more suffering down the road, that's probably all my life is going to be from now on is suffering. And that's our new set of expectations, right? Kind of creating a future that doesn't exist. So, Point number two, here's what we learned from this, guys. Contentment is not about changing our circumstances, and it's not about ditching your desires, okay? 
Contentment is not about changing your circumstances or ditching your desires. Perfect circumstances will never yield com- contentment. Thomas Akempis, theologian, puts it this way. He says, you cannot find complete satisfaction in any temporal gift because you were not created to find your delight in them. Even if you possessed all the good things God has created, you could not feel happy and glad. All your gladness and happiness rest in the God who created these things. And the, the root of discontentment, the root isn't even comparing reality with expectations. The root is trying to get something outside of God to achieve ultimate satisfaction in your souls. When, when guys, our souls were designed to only be satisfied by God. You know, we've been, we've been using this language of satisfy, right? There's this, this spiritual satisfaction of our souls, but it might make, make you think of physical satisfaction for your stomach, right? Throw that, that, that first picture up there, Jack, that feast. Imagine if this was set before you, right? This unbelievable feast. Not only would this satisfy your hunger for a long time, but it would also make you healthy, right? It gives you all the things that your body needs physically to thrive, okay? Throw that second picture up there, though. Here's what we choose a lot of times, right? And guys, it's always got the great colorful packaging, right? Kind of like the things we're discontent about. They're appealing on the outside, right? But here's the thing about it. I mean, God, he, God is a feast for our souls. And the things in this world that we choose to replace him, not only don't they satisfy, but here's what else is going to happen if you choose this. You don't get enough of the good stuff, right? There's no, I, I can tell you for a fact, there's no protein or vitamins and minerals in there, okay? I know this, guys, all right? But not only do you not get enough of the good stuff, you don't get enough of God when you chase after that stuff, but you get too much of the bad stuff, right? The high fructose corn syrup. And you know what happens when you get too much of the bad stuff? You get sick. And you know what that sickness is called? It's called idolatry, right? That's where discontentment so often leads. We, we've kind of so elevated this expectation to such a high level in our life that we just, we kind of squeeze God out of prime position in our lives. Now, contentment is certainly not opposed to the weight of those desires that we have. We said those desires, they're good, a lot of them, right? It's okay to have heartache. It's okay to cry out to God amidst your unfulfilled desires, amidst your trials. But here's what contentment is opposed to. It's opposed to desires that consume our hearts and lives to the point that we're distracted from worshiping God and we would rather worship our circumstances. We're so distracted from worshiping God. We're so fixated on this thing that we need to get, this status that we need to get to, this life situation we have to achieve, that that's what we worship instead of God. So if contentment is not about changing our circumstances or ditching our desires, what is it about? Well, let's go back to the text here again. I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's so short. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For, and the way that you should read that for is, here's the reason coming for why you should be satisfied with what you have. Okay? For he, that's God himself, has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. 
Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Here's our third takeaway this morning. The condition for contentment is the presence of God. The condition for contentment is the presence of God. Let's throw that last diagram up there. Now, when our condition for contentment is the presence of God and not perfect circumstances, okay, the circumstances, they're not even on there. It's not about being single or being married, not having kids or having kids, first and foremost. We've taken the circumstances out of the equation, and reality matches our expectations. What's our expectation? Our expectation is that God's provision and his protection and his faithfulness is all that we need. That is enough to fulfill me. And that's reality. God will provide, he will protect, and he is faithful. And here's what happens. The entitlement, oh, I deserve to have a wife. I deserve to have a husband. It turns into gratitude. The restlessness turns into peace. The dissatisfaction turns into fulfillment. And understand this. The promise that is made in verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you, can be made by no one else in this world, by nothing else in this world. That's the lie that the things we go after will give us, but it's a lie. Everything else will fail us. Now, we need to know the force of this promise. Some of you guys know that I love to geek out on Greek, and and this is actually a legitimate opportunity for me to do so for just a second. So here's what the Greek language loves to do. To get a point across, they love to pile up negatives. You know, in English, you're not supposed to have a double negative, right? Two. Well, in, in the Greek, in this phrase, I will never leave you or abandon you, there's five negatives in the Greek. Five. So a better translation might be something like this. This is what God says to you. I will not ever leave you. No, not ever. No, really, I will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. I will never, ever, ever, ever forsake you. That's the force of that promise. That's what we need to hear this morning, I think, Veritas. And listen, if that's true, that he will never leave us, okay, then verse 6 is also true. We have no legitimate reason to be afraid. There's ultimately nothing in this world that can harm us. Not the loneliness of singleness, not the heartache of not having kids, not a job that we feel miserable about waking up to each morning. None of that can harm us. And I want you to see what we have here in verse 6. The first thing we have is a confession. The Lord is my helper. The Hebrew actually reads, Yahweh is, he's for me. He's by my side in everything that I do. Then we have an expression of confidence. I will not be afraid. And then last, we have a boast. What can man do to me? It was really, really hard to get to this boast. But before I ever knew my wife, I had to make this boast. God, if I'm alone the rest of my life, if I never have a wife, my life is complete. You're enough. And and right now, God, if none of this stuff ever gets fixed in my house, thank you. What a great gift, God. 
It's enough. I can be at peace with it. So what's your boast? You know, what is unnerving you, the thing that you can't have that you want? What's your boast about that? Make it specific. And I want you to notice that this is a confession meant to be stated out loud by the congregation. Look at verse 6 there. It says, therefore, we may boldly say, right? So here's what we're going to do, Veritas. We're going to memorize this right now, okay? We're going to say this together, and we're going to memorize it. Let's, let's just get, so we got the, the full verse up here. We're going to take away a few more words with each recitation of this verse, Okay? Let's say it out loud. Everybody at once. Ready? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Okay? All right. Going to get a little bit harder each time. Okay? Here we go. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Okay? Let's take it up a notch. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? All right. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? All right, let's, let's try one more here. Here we go. This is the test. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Perfect. Great job, guys. You have at least one verse memorized, okay? That's awesome. Now, we all have a lot of work to do to probably catch up with the kids over there because they do an awesome job of that. But Veritas, that is our confession. That's our confidence. That's our boast in whatever it is you're discontent about. So let's, let's move on to some application here. We have to talk about money. I know you guys don't want to talk about that this morning, but it's in the verse. Okay, so number one, give your money away until it hurts. Okay, number one, Give your money away until it hurts. The guideline, hey, give 10% of your gross income to the local church. And, and I've, I've legitimately had some people tell me I have a negative income. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, I'm in law school right now. I owe like $200,000 to the university. I'm like, okay, well, just start somewhere. Because experience plays out that if you don't start early, you'll never start. And I say, give until it hurts, because there should be things that we have to sacrifice, that we go without as Christians, you know? Maybe we live in a smaller house. Maybe it's less vacations. Maybe it's just going out to eat less. But we've got to be careful about taking all the sacrifice out of following Jesus. So number one, give your money away until it hurts. And then two, count your blessings. Literally, count your blessings, okay? Stated it earlier, but it's impossible to be discontent and grateful at the same time. It's, it's impossible. And, and so literally make a list of all the things you have to be thankful for. And to do this well, for God to really open your eyes up to the things maybe you're not seeing right now that you have to be thankful for, don't stop till you get to 100. Don't stop until you get to 100. Uh, number three, don't play the comparison game, okay? In essence, that's what we're doing, right? We're comparing reality to expectations. And so often, the platform we do that on is social media, right? We get this kind of idealized view of everybody's life out there. Oh, man, if I only had that life, or look at that family, look at that guy's job. 
Maybe part of the application is just get off of social media. I don't know. But don't play the comparison game. And then I'm going to go outside the box a little bit for this last one. Practice a weekly Sabbath. Practice a weekly Sabbath. For some reason, this is the, the one of the Ten Commandments that Christians often think is optional. Really, we do, if we're honest. It wasn't until not that long ago that I started practicing it. For most of my Christian life, I did not do this. Whatever you do to earn a paycheck, do none of it one day a week. And I'll be bold enough to say, if you're a student, pick one day a week to do zero studying. Okay? And, and here's the reason why. We have to know what the spirit of the Sabbath is. The spirit of the Sabbath is this. It's acknowledging through rest and worship that I'm not responsible for my provision and my sufficiency. That ultimately does not rest on me. And by taking an entire day off, we stop earning things, we stop producing things, maybe even stop buying things, just to take a whole day to say, God, I'm going to acknowledge you by resting and worshiping that it, the provision is ultimately on you. You're the one that's going to provide all that I need. And you don't have to over-spiritualize it. When I say worship, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, singing songs. You know, it can be drinking good coffee, taking a walk in nature, playing Legos for me. That's part of my worship on my Sabbath, okay? <laughs> have fun with it. But take it seriously. Guys, the, the gospel is the ultimate motivation for contentment because the gospel answers the three most crucial questions that discontentment asks. And, and the first question is this, is God really good? Is God really good? I, I mean, it seems that if God were truly good, he would give me this thing that I want, this good thing that I want. Or if God were really good, maybe he would take away the bad circumstances that I don't want. Is God really good? Number two, is God really near? I mean, I keep crying out to God. I cry myself to sleep, right? I can't see his hand in what is going on in my life right now. He doesn't seem like he's there. And does God really care? This situation absolutely crushes my heart. I'm not sure that it crushes God's. I'm not sure that he cares to share in my vulnerability, in my weaknesses, in my heartaches. Well, the story of the gospel is that amidst our greatest need, the need to be redeemed from our rebellion and our grumbling and our gratitude toward God, the need to be brought near to God, he initiated and came to us. He didn't wait for us to come to him. That was never going to happen. He came to us in the form of a human being in his son, Jesus Christ. And, and, and by doing that, he set the standard. Here's the standard of what I'm willing to give you. He started at the top. Okay, Reason would say, and scripture says, if he wasn't unwilling to give you the greatest gift he could ever give you, he's going to give you everything else that you need. And we've learned this point so pointedly through Hebrews. It's through Jesus Christ. He's our mediator, we've learned, right? We can approach God's throne through Jesus Christ. So it's through Jesus Christ that he does actually share in our vulnerability. He didn't remain distant. I mean, he was on the cross. He was literally on the cross. 
And so he does enter into our weaknesses and our heartaches. He's not distant. He's not unable to sympathize when we have good desires that go unmet. He cares deeply about them. And he will always be at your side through them. He will never, ever leave you. He will never, ever fail you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for just revealing to me and my own soul how much discontent there is in my life and how much grumbling I actually do. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to see those things that we're going after, that we think we need to be fulfilled, that we, we think we need to kind of have a complete life, to have a peace of mind and a peace of heart, God. And, and it's probably not about ditching all those things. But it's probably about you reprioritizing our hearts, God. And I pray that you would do that, Father God. Help us to believe that amidst the heartaches that we really do have in those unmet desires, that you're there. And not only are you there, but you provide us what we actually need to fulfill our souls, God. Help us to believe that you are near and you are good and you care. And may that be our boast, God. You are our helper. You're with us through it all. We will not be afraid. This world, the people in it can do nothing ultimately to cut us off from you and to harm our souls. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.